I want you to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5. The joy that is set before us is real. It is there, and it is a cause and a reason for us to have joyful and glad hearts. Because not everybody who names the name of Christ has a cheerful countenance. And a lot of people have learned to be sad and have learned to have dismal outlooks in life, even though they sit in church every week or they read their Bible or whatever they do all the time, it seems like it's overruled. The power that's in the Word and the good things that God says in the Word seems to be overruled by life's problems and circumstances, and you see that more than you see the evidence of the Word of God living and abiding in your heart. You don't see the joyfulness about that. God gave Jesus something to be joyful about in pursuing the joy that was set before him, it wasn't easy, it cost him his life. It'll cost you your life also in this world and in this life because you've got to lay it down for Christ. And as Jesus had to face the cross, so do we. We have a cross every day. These are things that are set before us that we have to do. You've got to take up the cross, etc. There's nothing easy about the Christian life when you, with an honest heart, desire to know what things mean in the Bible, and you begin to seek the understanding of those things, nothing's easy. But it does separate those who are sincere from those who are not sincere, even though they can all sit in the same room and read the same Bible, sing the same choruses and songs and so forth. I finish Sunday by saying this, that we should examine ourselves to see why we're not cheerful. I can say as pastor this church. This is the best church I've ever pastored. <laughs> the only one I've ever done what I'm doing now. And I have seen a transition from liveliness. I hope it was real. It seemed like it was. It was certainly good. I've seen a transition from a lively, exuberant praise on every meeting. There wasn't one that you didn't. It was always there to where it's most of the praise is now a soft singing of a hymn and sort of a, a kind, respectful way of singing songs. It's not so much exuberance. And I know something has happened. I know something in the last 20 years has changed. I know that. And I know that change comes and change spiritually should be good because we should be growing and we should be going from glory to glory to glory. But if we're not excited or happy or glad about all these many years that God has showed us things and taught us things, if those things are not before us as a cause of our joy, then we've let something get in between us and God. Something has been able to come into your life, and even though you've heard better, it's not being practiced. And it especially in this series, it especially shows up in worship and praise. That's where it seems to evidence itself the most, whether it's the effect of the world, the effect of your family, your children growing up, and the new things there that you have to deal with, or maybe it's other kinds of circumstances. Maybe bad mistake, bad move, and yucky things come in, but it should not suppress us so that we rob God of his joy because he's shown us what to do with those things, like casting all your care over on the Lord. He showed us to do that. Not that we do it, but he showed us to do that. And people who do that are those people who seem to have the ability or the desire to be cheerful and happy about any time you see them. It's not that life's easier for them than it is for you. It's just that there's been a willingness to practice what they've heard. And lo and behold, even when you practice the things that God has said, when it's all going downhill, it seems, at some point, God comes in and lifts you up, and nothing really changes about your situation, but he lifts you up until you have a confidence you never had before that this is going to work, that what God has taught you and all of this is going to work. You're going to overcome this. This is going to be better because God will bring you through this. He's going to turn it around and make it in a way that he's going to be glorified by it. You just got to hang on there. And when you get that, 
you begin to smile and say, praise the Lord. People know you're going through a difficult time, but you say, hallelujah. You can even minister to other people who are going through hard times because you know how. You know how. They've watched you go through it. They know you're not just a Sunday go to meet and Christian, but you're one that's living the life, and you're living to the point that it's the greatest thing in your life. It's the joy that is set before us that we're supposed to live, and we need to examine ourselves to see why these things aren't working in our life, and then we need to learn to bring every thought captive through the obedience of Christ. I ended there Sunday talking about that, and there's a whole lot more we could say about capturing thoughts because that implies you're paying attention to what you're hearing. And if you're hearing things that don't line up with the word, you bring that down and you crucify it. I will not be governed by things that are outside of what God said. I will not let bad, dull, wicked, evil thoughts suppress me. I won't allow that to stand. I'll bring every thought captive through the obedience of Christ. And if they speak not according to this word, they have no light, and you're not going to live in darkness, so you don't accept it. If it doesn't line up with the Word, I'm not going to have it. question is, though, how much of the Word is in there as a signal to you that what you're hearing is not right, or what you're doing is not right, or where you're going is not right. How many people have that little spiritual alarm inside of them that goes off when it's not exactly like God said? And... That's the way we live, and that's the way God is leading us. And just remember, God has given us so many reasons to be joyful. Healing and health is promised. Did you know that? And just because you don't see it or you don't feel it right now, that's not a reason for you to be sad and sorrowful. God can't lie. God is not deceiving us by telling us that we should do something. And he said he will do this, if you will, and then... For him not to do that. He doesn't do that. He says, I am the Lord who heals you. My word is medicine to your flesh. When you didn't feel good, have you ever sat down and said to the Lord, I'm going to take you at your word? Now, I've done this a lot. I've set my children on my lap and done this many times. Now, you said this word is medicine to my flesh. Now, there's something here that's not right physically whether in my children or in my body. Now, I'm going to give myself a dose of the gospel. And I start, in fact, I learned to memorize all these things. I start with Exodus 15, 26. You said, I'm the Lord that heals you. Now, I receive that now in Jesus' name. You are my healer. Then I'd go to Deuteronomy 7, 15. You said you would remove all sickness from the midst of us. I'm going to take you at your word because there's some here that needs to go, and I'm taking you at your word. You said your word was medicine to my flesh. Proverbs 4. You said you sent your word to heal us. Now, I'm receiving that. You said in Isaiah 53, Jesus bore our... I receive that. That's your word. I receive that like I would a pill. And I command my body to receive this. I lay my hands on my children and say, I give you a dose of this in Jesus' name. And I know what people who sit in church their whole life think about that. They're not moved by these promises. What I said is a story. Quoting the Bible, telling testimonies, being without medical help for 30-some years, and yet people think you made it up. Well, I didn't make it up. Ask my wife. Ask our children. It's just a willingness to take God at His word, which is a reason for joy. When I hear somebody talk about God's our healer. I don't go, huh? I mean, inside, I may not jump up and down like the village idiot or somebody, but I, on the inside, I say, praise the Lord. Amen. Because I know what that means. That is a reason for my joy. It is. He said he will prosper me. That's a reason for my joy. I'm not in the Christian life to make money. I resigned myself to be broke when I grew up. God is reprogramming my mind to know that he wants me to prosper and be in hell. It doesn't take money for me to be happy just to promise that my needs, whatever they are, will be supplied. They can't be too big because God can do exceeding above all that you ask or think. Well, these things are still exciting. The sheen, the shine, the glow has never worn off in all these years. That's still a wonderful subject. I love to talk about it. 
sometimes I realize that people aren't all that moved by it anymore. We're going to talk tonight about Hebrews 5, the symptoms of a joyless life. There are more than I'll share tonight, but I'm going to share with you the ones that's been on my mind. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, when the time has come that you should be a teacher yourself, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You've been a Christian 20 years, you still can't find the books in the Bible. That's a shame. Amen. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, one of the symptoms is dull of hearing. We've used this verse many times in many years. Dull of hearing. Because he said in verse 12, for the time you ought to be teachers, you need that someone teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you still are those who only want milk and not strong meat. You're one of those people that I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about what this verse is saying. There are people who, if you get a little deep, if you take it further than just the general denominational view of things, if you take it into a deeper study like of some theological subject, they get bored. They get bored because they're not interested. They're not interested because essentially they don't have an appetite for the Word of God. They go to church, they expect to hear you say something about God, about Jesus Christ, to read the Bible and sing some songs. That is what we kind of want in our Christian life, something to bolster our strength for the week ahead and something to encourage us midweek to uh, finish the week out and tell us about God. But as far as it having the mastery over our lives, as just filling our lives with expectancy and faith coming out of all of that, you and I both know that doesn't happen very often. No matter what promises you talk about, not many people really get excited about it. Either they don't believe it, they're not sure of it, or they've never heard it before. And it's almost too good to be true. If you do press upon them why this is true, then they begin thinking, well, if it's true, if God is our healer, then why is it that there are so many people sick? Why do so many people seem to be broken, destitute if God wants to prosper us? And why is it that if God protects us, and you know, he said the 91st Psalm and all of that, why is it then that so many people continually run into a problem? Accidents, thievery, something. I mean, I would like to believe that too, but I don't see any evidence of it working. And men unconsciously begin to measure the truth and the validity of God on what they see in people without considering that maybe people aren't Believing what God said, just wanting to believe it, but not really trying to believe it. And they begin to lose interest in after so many years of hoping things work in the Bible, it doesn't work. I'm telling you tonight, the average Christian in the average church does not know what faith is. Faith is the name of their denomination, Baptist faith, Christian faith, Church of God faith. But as far as something in your life by which you bring God's promises and their power to come to play in your life to set you free, they don't see it. They don't see it. I've been in a number of discussions, I would say arguments, in places I've traveled through the years of people who just don't agree with that. They don't think that you can just have faith in God and that's all it takes for God to bring his blessing into your life. Their grandfather, grandmother, aunt, uncle, some family member that they knew well who died poor and sick and broke, and they were the most generous and kind and serving people in the church, and they never got healed. They're basing everything that God says in his word on whether or not there's any evidence with people they think deserve it. But you can't earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift because you meet conditions. 
If you don't meet conditions, it doesn't work. But people who aren't taught that don't know that. And you get despondent, and therefore you do get quiet. And they do look at you strange when you start talking about this. Well, if God heals, why don't we see people heal? Hey, does God save? Did Jesus come to seek and save? Then why are so many people lost? Why is the world full of lost people if Jesus came to save? Now, they wouldn't think of it that way. Jesus came to heal. Why are so many people sick? The same reason they're lost. They don't believe. It takes faith to be saved, doesn't it? People are saved because they believe. Unless you think you can earn salvation. I'm going to be a Baptist for just a minute. The only way you're going to get anything from God is to take him at his word. You can't do good enough to get it. You have to believe it. He can give it because it's grace. And that's the way it works. Same thing is true with divine healing. The same verse of Scripture that says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, the same verse said, Who healeth all thy diseases. And yet people look at you like you're a cult. You're weird. You're beyond. You're over. You're outside, out of bounds, extreme. All because you quote the Bible. You all believe that there is such a thing as being blind? There's such a thing as blindness being applied to somebody's life where they can't see, having eyes to see they can't see? There really is. But being dull of hearing, Paul said we have a lot of things to say. We can't say it because you're dull of hearing. In chapter 6 and verse 12, the word dull is translated slothful, at least in the King James Bible. Can you see there in verse 12 where it says, Be not slothful, but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, today's cop-out, the Christian cop-out for taking God at his word is this. This is the Christian cop-out. Well, I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you're happy with that. Well, I'm glad you see it that way. I'm glad you're all excited about the way you see it in the Bible. They don't see that. But maybe they can't. But if you tell them that they can't, then they're offended by it, even though that's the truth. That's the truth. But truth is offensive to those who don't want it. Slothful. Go back to Hebrews 5 again. The Greek word literally means that Jameson Foster Brown commentary said the word means hard to move. Dull of hearing. The word dull is something that is hard to move. Another scholar said walks heavy, makes little speed. I think of a rocking chair. It's real busy. It doesn't go anywhere. Well, this is what dull is. It's like Christian busyness but it accomplishes nothing. I mean, you go to church, you're the goingest people in the world, you're three or four times a week, you're busy in departments and committees, but you're not growing. You're not more of the kind of person God wants you to be, you're just satisfied that you're status quo. We're just excited about our church. And that's not bad to be excited about your church if God's moving in your church. But the excitement comes with maturity, with growth, with seeing things on a higher level than you've seen it before. That doesn't mean you look down your nose at people who don't. It's by grace you even got here yourself. And if you got here by grace, don't look down at others who by the same grace can make it the same place. God is gracious to those who look for him. Grace can be added to grace. You can grow in grace, or you can frustrate grace. But grace is that opportunity when God opens himself up to you to give to you something you could not otherwise get. It's called grace. It's God showing favor. And the application of grace is mercy. God is merciful kindness. Mercy in the Old Testament sometimes translated loving kindness. Because God is merciful to his people who don't deserve it. But that's who we serve. That's another reason that we're glad, I am sure. But I want you to note three things in this passage here. Number one, it says in verse 11, that if you're dull of hearing, you're hard to teach. You're not a learner. And the sad thing about not being a learner is that the word disciple means learner. A pupil. And if you're not seeking to know more about your Lord, 
so you can serve Him better and more properly. If you're not learning, if you're not listening, you're not growing. I mean, you're not going anywhere. Second thing, you see in verse 11 where it says, hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. See the little word are before dull of hearing? Well, the word are means to become. I'm getting this from Mr. Weist or Mr. Woost, ever how you say his name. He was a, quite a scholarly Greek man, and I'm taking him at his word here. He said the word are means literally to become. That's why some translations say you have become hard of hearing. Now that thirdly implies this, that there was a time you weren't hard of hearing or dull of hearing. Would you agree? If he says you are become, it means once you were not. But whatever has happened, whatever events in your past, whatever has come into your life to suppress that, now you're hard to teach. Now you don't respond. Now the word has lost its enthusiasm, its excitement, it's lost its pop. Like Paul said here, he said, you know, there's some things God has shown me about the ministry of Melchizedek, probably how it is contrasted with the life ministry of Christ. He says, you know, there's some things about the Melchizedek priesthood I would like to show you. And Paul said this here, if Paul wrote this. He said, but it's hard to teach some of these things because you have become dull of hearing. And it's not deeper things that you want. It's not what Christ accomplished with the substitutionary atonement. Or what does the word substitution mean? What does it mean to be ransomed? And what are all the types, the scapegoat and the other goat and the types of offerings and the festivals and feasts? All of those portrayed a story and it was all fulfilled and characterized Christ himself. I like to teach that, but he says you're dull of hearing. Now, if you've never taught people yourselves, if you've never been a teacher, just an attendee, you probably can't relate to that too well. Now, I can. I've been a lot of places where teaching was like killing snakes. That's an old phrase that Kentucky folks use of killing snakes. Well, anyway, <laughs> meaning that it's difficult because what goes out comes back at you. It's not being received. There's always somebody there who came to hear, and God feeds somebody. But sometimes people go because it's church. And you can tell they're not receiving when they start looking at that watch on Sunday morning. I don't care how good it is, how glorious it is. It ain't like that to me. It ain't like that to me. And I've had about all of this morning's message I want. So shut her down. Now, how would you like to preach to that every week? Well, I wouldn't either. I'd meet in my house and curtains closed with a few people that were hungry, then I would fight that every week. I would fight going to some, I've been here too, in some old dead church that thought maybe if you came because they saw you at a full gospel meeting, they thought we could get him to come to our church. Boy, maybe we could get some of these folks awakened. You go to their church and they snore louder. <laughs> I've never heard anybody snore, but I mean, it didn't change a thing. You can get to the place where if God isn't going to open somebody's eyes, their eyes ain't ever going to be opened. And if a long time ago they made a decision that I don't really like all of this teaching, they're never going to be taught, and you're not going to teach them, and you're going to be real disappointed in trying to get them to learn something because they don't want to. Well, they go to church. I don't care where they go. They can go to the pool hall if they want to. They're just not going to learn because they just don't have it. And verse 12 there's no growth or maturity in people like that. They don't grow. Can you imagine pastoring a church for 35 or 40 years and the people never change? Never change. They were feisty and fighting and sensitive and difficult 25 years ago, and the same ones are still that way today, and nothing you said. And all the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours of teaching has not changed anything. Now, somebody's going to be real difficultly sad when they face God 
because it shouldn't be like that, should it? I'm just telling you what the book says here. He's talking about symptoms of people who are joyless and people who don't receive the word, who don't like to be taught, aren't joyful. Now, they can smile, they can do this, and you can go, and you can do that. That doesn't mean that's what you want to do. It's what everybody else is doing. You don't want to stand there like this here because somebody will be wanting to visit you. So you just kind of, you know, disarm everybody. Oh, he's all right. Or she gives a big testament. Praise the Lord. I don't want to thank God today that he showed me something this week about. And we say, well, that's good. God's really doing something there. And you look at the rest of the week, and this is a pastor's nightmare. See, some people know what you're supposed to do. And some people just live that way all the time. It's gladness and joyfulness of heart. I remember, as well as you do, when the Spirit of God was moving and there was a freedom to worship. Nobody was concerned about what everybody else was doing. And there was a joyful expectation. If I go there, God is, oh, I'm going to enjoy it. You got ready way before you needed to. You didn't have to look for your Bible. You knew where it was all the time. You went to church, you got out of the car, you smiled, and you greeted people. Praise the Lord, how you doing? And then they got to singing, the song leader, you know, he just got up there and hit that whatever he was playing, and we're ready. We're just ready to go. Joy, 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 in my heart is ringing. Now, a visitor comes along and goes, then the visitor gets saved, gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the visitor goes, But if the visitor goes and we're there with all of this testimony of the deeper life and praise is sort of pat the cake and just sort of a, I love you, Lord. And well, they're used to that. That's the way they do it where they were. I mean, the church that they go to and maybe does it the same way. Same thing, no different. I had a sign once, I haven't been able to find it because I changed things around, but joy is one of those things which evidences the presence of God because joy is a spiritual fruit. Happiness depends on what happens. Joy depends on what God said. If God said it, it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, I want to be on the good side. Amen. Praise the Lord. Second thing. Is in verse 14. Another symptom here is lacking discernment. Notice verse 14, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now referring again to Mr. Weist or Woos, however how you pronounce his name, he says the word Discern here means to distinguish, to decide. Discern is to make a difference between, to distinguish. You know this and you know that and you know the difference. It's how you properly and rightfully judge things in this life. You have to be able to make a difference. The word diacrino means to judge. Dia means two. You look at both sides, this way and that way, and you see the difference, and you make a distinction between what is right and what is wrong, and you do what is right. Now, he translates the verse like this. He said, but solid food belongs to those who are spiritually mature. Now, first of all, let me say this. For the spiritually mature, they want the word. They want solid food. Don't play games with me about A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Let me grow. I've had milk. I want some more. Let me step out. Give me something deeper. Just take me a little deeper. Give me something to think about. Give me something that agitates inside of me, that stirs me up so that I can press into something. Don't leave me alone with what I learned 30 years ago, and that's all it's ever preached is how to get saved, 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 how to get saved. Because some churches, that's all they hear. My friend whose name was Bernie, a preacher over in Illinois, 
years ago, a little meeting. He had a church like ours. And they came out of the faith camp from out west. Big on prosperity and a lot of divine healing. But one day he listened to a, a tape that was about the righteousness of God by somebody outside of their camp. And he had never seen such a subject detailed and magnified like he heard it on that tape, and it inspired him. He's had a taste for something beyond where he had ever been, so he began to study. Well, as he began to study that, God began to show him what it means and how it can be applied in our lives. And he said, oh, these people, they need this. So Bernie, the preacher, listened to all of that, did a lot of research, spent a lot of time, and brought it out sort of in a theological flavor about righteousness. Righteousness, God is righteous. What righteousness means, it means God's right ways in your life. He went into all of that, and uh, I think for two weeks, and he told me, he said, after the second week, one of the older elders, the brothers in the church came up to him and said, Brother, I don't know what kind of little trip you're on here with all this stuff. I said, man, we haven't had a good sermon on prosperity in two weeks. We talk about maybe the, the Baptists always preach about once saved, always saved, or being born again every week. Well, charismatics, at least the way he was talking, they only want to know how to get money. Or worse, at least the Baptist folks that I've known in my past like the theological side of it. They like to know what it means and had something to say beyond where most people are. You see, there's a hunger that leads to discernment. Because the more you get into it, the more God begins to dissect it for you. And you begin to see things the way you've never seen it before. If you're growing, if you're maturing, if you're beginning to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He goes on to say, to those who are spiritually mature, to those who on account of usage have their powers of perception exercised to the point where they are able to discriminate between both that which is good in character and that which is evil. Now let me read it all again without stopping. This is verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are spiritually mature, to those who on account of long usage have their powers of perception exercised to the point where they are able to discriminate between both that which is good in character and that which is evil. He is saying that as you mature, you begin to look more carefully at what's going on around you and in front of you in your life and other people's lives. You begin to Instead of just taking everything for granted, you begin to note that if you're not careful, this can happen. And if you're not careful, that can happen. And you know what? That happens so easily. I need to be a little more careful here about the way I'm going and what I'm doing. You begin to discriminate. You begin to separate into two or three different sections here. You begin to look more carefully. And then you begin to make right decisions. You begin to make right decisions to do the right things because if something is good and something is bad, if there's evil behind this and there is God behind this, or this is leading people into error and this is leading people into righteousness, well then a mature person says, I see the difference. I'm watching people follow something that's ruining them and I'm seeing over here a very unpopular narrow way, but look at the joy on their faces. They don't need anything to have joy. They don't have to have a good day. They seem to have it together. And they said by the discerning of their senses, they begin to grow. Secondly, here's another translation. But solid food is for men of full growth, even for those whose senses are trained by use to see what is good and what is evil. Another translation. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Is it possible that what God is showing us that is right and wrong is also teaching us how to discriminate between what is good and what is bad? Is he not showing us the difference? 
And if we see that's right and we exercise our senses to do the right thing, then he says we grow. But if you're just taking church, religion, God for granted, when you don't pay attention to what the preacher said or what you're being taught, or you're bored by the word, you don't know how to discern. You don't discern. You think as long as they sing about Jesus, it's got to be good. And that's not true. But when you begin to look more carefully, when God gets your attention, you begin to look more carefully. You pay attention. Something was said in the sermon. You begin to check it out. Huh, I wonder what that means. Well, you look around. He begins to show you what that means. Holy Spirit's working on the inside of you, opening your eyes and letting you see right and wrong. If he hadn't opened your eyes, you're going to do whatever you want to do, and most of the time it's wrong. And he begins to make a difference with you. Your difference causes you to be persecuted because it makes you take a stand, not a popular stand. You begin to distance yourself from a broad way, and people on the broad way just gnash their teeth at you. But you're making the right decision. And if you ever notice people that in the world, in the broad way, they're not happy people. I mean, you read the paper every day, the people that have a lot of money, have a lot of fame, movie stars, sports, and athletes, these people are so sad and dull or they're mad and angry all the time. You ever notice? There is such a lack, there's such a hole, a dark place in their life. They can't get over the hump. They can't go to enough bars. They can't have enough sex. There's not enough alcohol. There's not enough drugs. They can't get on enough highs. They can't do enough things to find that whatever they're looking for. They can't find it. They try church. They go somewhere. If they're famous, the preacher wants them to be in a leadership right away and take advantage of their notoriety so the church will grow. They don't care about his soul. And he loses interest there because he finds nothing in this religious atmosphere that has any meaning because he isn't being taught. And if he's not taught, if he doesn't have anything on the inside of him, he can't make the right distinctions in the world. Like Halloween. How much discernment do you have to have to know that Halloween is a devil's holiday? That's coming up here shortly. It's a time of glorifying the devil. And churches have Halloween parties. They have haunted houses. They got the witch. You remember what he said in the Bible about a witch? They're not even allowed to live. Oh, we like them. They're cute. And there's Casper. If your name's Casper, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a little white ghost. He's cute. And it's cute for the kitties. And it's all about candy and kitties and demons. And deliverance and bondage. So they just dress up like the devil, dress up like a witch. Church has a haunted house, so they'll have nightmares when they get done. Isn't that cute? Because that church has not one lick of discernment. They don't see the difference. God leveled his people in Ezekiel 22. Man, he drew down on them, if I can say it that way. He says, look at my people. Look at the nation. These are my people. I brought them with great power. I brought them out of bondage and through miracles and signs and wonders and with great assistance from God, I put them in this land. I helped them get into this land. Look at them. They're worse than the people whose land they took over in this land. All these ites and icks and ticks in this land. They were so bad, I destroyed them all, including their children. And I gave that land to you, and now you're worse than they are. Then he turns to the priest, the prophets, and all those that are responsible for spiritual teaching. He said, you folks have made no difference between the clean and the unclean. You have deceived my people, and as Jeremiah said in chapter 23, you have caused these people to err, and now I must judge them. i got to judge a nation. I've been reading the book of Jeremiah in the morning and over and over. You're going to be cast away into a far country, and it's going to be a 
difficult time in your life all because of sin. And the people who taught you are the cause. You live the way you do and why I have to judge you. Whew. Sad thing about it is they had no discernment. I'm talking about religious leaders right now as I'm speaking. PhDs or whatever they're called. They can't tell the difference between Halloween being of the devil and not of God. They don't know. Well, you see, that was... Uh, and then they go into some dissertation. Now, when they start talking that way, that's when you grab those words you're hearing, you capture them. And you bring those words down on the inside where you've been hiding the word. Thy word have I hid uh, in my backpack, <laughs> in my heart. And you begin to say, now, God, is this what the word says? And your heart says, not at all. You're being deceived. You listen to that, you won't know what you believe. So you shut that out. You cut it down. Put stoppers in your ears and get up and go home. And people talk about you, how narrow you are and how extreme you are. I am. I hope I'm guilty of that. I hope when it's over, I'm guilty of being narrow. Because the only people that Jesus said there's only going to be a few, they're going to make it. Didn't he say that? Discernment. What did he say in Matthew 16? He said, you hypocrites, you look in the sky and it's red and you know you're going to have this or that. And he said, and then you look in the morning, you, you say it's going to be foul weather today because the sky is red and lowering. Jesus said this, oh, you hypocrites, you play actors. He said, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the time of the end. Nobody's taught you. Didn't, how many times did Jesus say things like, when you see this come to pass, then you know? That's how you discern. <laughs> and yet people see these things come to pass. They don't know what's going on. But they don't care. Because they're dull of hearing. They're not interested. They just want to be socially upgraded by being in a nice church. And they want to be extreme. Leave me alone. Can you see in this business of not being discerning, can you yourself in here, can you see where you've been the last few years? Can you see where you're going? Can you discern your life as you're sitting in these seats or out there in the electric world? Can you see where you are right now in light of where you once were? Can you tell any difference tonight in your attitude about God as opposed to your attitude a long time ago? Has it improved or is it basically the same? Be able to discern yourself. I mean, we can discern everybody else, but we have to learn how to discern ourselves. Can you see what's behind where you're going? Can you see what's behind your motivation to do what you're about to do? Is it God? Did he inspire you to do this? Are you doing what he wants you to do? How many times did we get in big church programs that build great big and float alone and borrow out the ears and we do all of this without regard as to whether or not this is God's will for this congregation? We just look around and we don't want to be the only church in town that doesn't have a new building, so let's build. Is that God's will? Well, sure it is. Well, okay. How do we know it is? I mean, let's have some discernment about what's right and what's not right. About the right way to go. Are we pursuing something here that God has inspired or are we doing something that's all flesh? Devotion to self. Whoa, look at us. We've got to have some kind of discernment. Are you aware of the devil's devices? Didn't the Bible tell us that we are not unaware of his devices? That you can fall prey to the enemy? The devil is an enticer. He comes in to affect your minds. That's the way he works. A third thing that goes along with this is you make careless decisions. You lose your joy. The world begins to creep in. You're not really paying a whole lot of attention to what you're doing. 
who you're running around with, what you're listening to, what you're watching, what kind of conversations you're engaged in or who you're with, how you're conducting your business, whether you're being a little shady or a little bit hypocritical. You get careless because you get away from the Lord. And when you become careless, you lose your joy. How about attendance? All you need to do is miss a few meetings for whatever reason. I don't mean you're gone. I just mean you just, well, if you've done this before, you miss one, it's easy to miss two. You miss two, it's easy to miss four. And then the devil comes in and says, oh, I guess you're going to go number five now. And I guess you're going to go after just going to church here a little bit here recently. You had not been here much. I guess you're going to go in there now and raise your arms and say, pray. Well, you hypocrite. The devil not only encourages you not to go to church, but then when you do, he accuses you of being a hypocrite for not going. It's a mind game. And people are so vulnerable, and he is always after their mind and their brain. Because that's what he's after. He wants to mess with your mind. Make you think wrong. Because as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. He wants you to take your salvation for granted. You joined the church once, didn't you? Didn't you go to the church? Didn't you hold your hand up? Didn't you go during that revival crusade? Didn't your mother pray for you? Your dad pray for you? Didn't you come forward at, on a Wednesday night or Sunday morning? I mean, didn't you do that? Well, I mean, you're all right. There's really nothing left to do. I ain't saying you can go back to drinking and carousing if you want to, but if you did, you ain't going to be lost. I don't know who teaches things like that. I don't think the Bible does. Somebody once said, well, you're saying that you're saved by works. No, sir, you're saved by faith. You're born again only one way. God does it. And once you're born again, he says you make your calling and election sure. You shall know them by their fruits. There's a life you live because you love it. You're not seeking some easy way through life. You love the one that saved you, and you honor him with your life. Because the Bible says glorify God in your body, and you honor him with your life. And you don't want to offend God. And you learn, the Holy Spirit shows you what is offensive to God, and you begin to take that out of your program. And he shows you other things you should and should not do, and you begin lining up with that. You begin to be a faithful person. Your mind is being renewed, as he said in Romans 12, 2. It's a part of the transition, the metamorphosis from an old lost sinner who, when God saved you, he didn't make you different in your mind. You still got the same old mind, but you come to the Lord, he gives you something to start thinking about. You got to kick stuff out to allow the new stuff in. Being renewed in the, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, the spirit of your mind. It's a life you live. Not very many people will do this. Not very many I've ever known. Very, very few. But you get careless with your life. You get careless with choices. You don't put much spiritual emphasis upon praying about things. You just sort of do whatever you feel and whatever you think. And because it's not working and because there's no benefit to that, there's no joy in your life. Eh, eh. And you can fold your arms in the midst of the Spirit of God prompting you and urging you to worship God. Eh, no. And the world really does creep back in your life. And the world really does take over. And you really are more worldly than you are spiritual. And you lose your joy. That's a symptom. Let me give you a fourth thing. Oh, you won't like this when I get into it. Is you're negative. You're negative. You all believe the word of God is positive, that it has a positive influence on us? And yet, what if God says you can do all things through Christ, but you're always telling what you can't do? Why are you saying that? Well, because I can't. God says you can. Well, okay, then I can. I can, but I can't. You become negative. I've never seen in my life, I try to think about that, who have I ever seen that was negative, who was joyful? When have I ever seen somebody who just talked negative, talked down? All their discussions are about negative things. I don't know if I've ever seen joy. I've been in a lot of phone conversations, and I'm sure a lot of them are listening to what I'm saying tonight that I've talked to. God knows I'm not trying to be mean and rude or ugly. I'm just trying to espouse a truth. How's that? 
I've had people talk to me on the phone, tell me sometimes the same story over and over about why something is not right and nothing's going down in and and he said, and I can't believe this. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I have got to get off this phone. One time I said, you know what? Where's the good in all of this? Well, now God's taught us better than that, hadn't he? I mean, didn't he say, think on these things, if they're honest, good, good report? Didn't he say, think on that? Well, if there isn't any, then you just might as well just put a sack over your head and get in a vacuum somewhere where you can't think because you don't have nothing to think about. And you go to church and you get a lot of positive things to think about. Even the sinful tendencies in your life is a positive because it's something you can change and quit doing and align yourself more with God and His favor. But, true, we are negative in your attitude. You ever hear a talk show? A conservative talk show. I'm talking about a right-wing, hang-em-high, conservative talk show. You get a lot of positive feedback. From the time that thing starts until it's over, you hear what's wrong with the other party all day long. And when you get through your mind, which you've given to that stuff, you've allowed all that stuff to seep into your mind, and how, no matter how hard you try not to, you start thinking about it until you begin thinking negative things yourself. That isn't what Philippians 4 is talking about. Whatever things are lovely... Well, the Democrats, well, I didn't say Democrats were lovely. Or Republicans. They are roommates. They blow a different horn, but they're roommates. But he said, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are true, whatever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That would make you have a joyful countenance. I wouldn't have anything to listen to. Praise the Lord. I have to turn my radio off to get away from it. Well, turn it off. But I imagine as much as anything else in this generation and in this hour that contributes to negativity would be all those things that the computer has inspired. Internets. Chat rooms. Now, I don't know what all these mean, but Twitter... I remember in the Bambi movie, there was a rabbit that was Twitter-pated. <laughs> but I don't think Twitter has anything to do with what I'm thinking. I don't think that rabbit's in there. Then there's MySpace. There are people who spend a lot of time surfing. I'm not talking about water, and I'm not talking about the ocean. There's a lot of people who get up in the morning. I know this is true. They get up in the morning, and they turn the computer on. And while they're doing anything else, they're watching it, and they go into certain sites, wonder what he's got to say, and wonder, well, wonder what's going on over there. Well, what, what, what did she say? Go back and see what she said. <gasps> you believe that? Oh, be, what's wrong with her? I ought to fire her. And then, what do you do now? Oh, how much is that going to cost? Oh, they, they, yeah, I agree with this guy. He said he's a crook. Or you go into some chat room about the latest, you know, in the local scene about who we used to know that's not doing so well. And did you hear the latest? Hey, keep doing that and you watch yourself slowly suffocate spiritually. Just keep doing it. Because what you bring in that door, when you drag that stuff in here, if you do, if you do, when you come in here and sit down, you're a dud. You're dull of hearing and you're not going to get anything out of it because your mind has been saturated with negative stuff all day long. All day long. It's just negative. People you talk to who are always talking about my problems and me. See, I've been in here long enough now, I can talk about a number of examples that I could give you about people that are negative, who ask leading questions. You're supposed to say, well, why? What's wrong? So that person can then tell you all the negative things in their life. This desire to talk about me my problems, what I can't do, it's not fair, and it's too far and too slow. I'm not talking about any particular person. I'm talking about 
many people over the years. Just negative. I've been there. Because when you become negative, you become critical. I've never seen a critical rejoicer. I'm critical, but I have gladness of heart. You won't find it. It kills it. It kills joy. You think Rush Limbaugh could come in here and rejoice? He couldn't. He'd be impossible. Not only because he's not saved, but because his mind is so filled with being the fault finder of the universe that he could not enjoy this. He doesn't mind us being religious because that's part of conservatism. That's the founding fathers. But but let me tell you something, folks. I believe a computer can control you. I believe you can sit in front of it. You can seek it out. And what if you had to turn the thing off for one week and we're not allowed to, if you touched it, you'd get leprosy. What would happen to people? Well, I'd probably go broken one week. You realize how much our lives are controlled by that thing? Used to be the TV was a trashy vision. Used to hear it that way. Well, you know what? I think there's a lot more trash on the tube now and on that other stuff. It's nastier now than it's ever been. And you look for faults, you look for who's the latest. What did they say up where so-and-so used to preach? What's happening? Who, who? What'd they say? Go to his website and see what. Look at that. Listen to what he said. Mabel, have you heard the latest? Yeah, I've got it right here on my, yeah, on, on my screen. He said, he did. Oh, I can't believe it either. I've I got to go by. Hey, Joanna, you heard what he said? Hey, hey uh, Lucille, you heard what he said? <laughs> Listen to me, all of you. Do you really think that enhances you spiritually? We come in here, you think we are free to open up to God? There's something suppressing. We call it oppression. Something that has come into people's lives in the last at least 15 years. Something has come in and has just squished it. Now, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't. Do you want that to happen to you? I don't want that to happen to me. I want to be delivered from all of that stuff. My next point is that when you're joyless, you give up easy. I don't want that. I don't want to give up easy. I don't want to be suspicious and critical. I don't want to have phone calls about the latest gossip. I don't even want to know it. I used to hear a man say that a long time ago. I don't want to hear all that stuff. And I think, well, how could you not hear it? Everybody's talking about it. But now I understand. Here I am at a time in my life, many years later, I understand it now. My mind works a whole lot better when it's focused on God and everything that doesn't condemn me. I learn better. I listen better. I'm perceptive. I can see things better, more discerning. And yet if I hear bad news and hear corrupt stuff, it goes my mind all day long. And I see people that I've heard stories about, and you think, run, dog, and you got to stop. Wait, you don't know that's even true. Quit calling him a dog. It might not be true. Give him the benefit of the doubt. They talked about you before, and it wasn't true. Well, then give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't need that in my mind. You don't need that in your mind either. Quit letting each other talk negative to you all day long. I know we have to talk about our problems sometimes. I know that. But do it in a constructive way. And as far as who left who and ran off and did what and jumped over what, I don't want to know it. When you hear that, bring those things captive to the obedience of Christ. Would Jesus put his arm around your neck and say, isn't that awful? He said, well, he wouldn't do that. Yeah, he set them down on the hillside. Remember Jesus taught the people, set them down on the hillside? He said, boys, I don't know what we're going to do. This nut that's running the kingship around here, the king's whatever, he's crazy. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. I just heard the other day he did this and did that, and here we are out of, we ought to. It never affected his life. As we call it, he was always focused. It was always about his father. Maybe that's why he stayed away and stayed alone so much and didn't allow a lot of people to talk to him. Maybe that's why. He become disagreeable difficult, joyless, and listen to this, sensitive. 
because now everybody's talking about you. Now you're on the sermon. Now he's after you. That's not true. But if you think it's true, it's, it's not like you want to repent from what you've said or done. I just don't know what to do anymore. And I, I, no wonder you don't know what to do. Look at what you listen to all day long. Finally, you make excuses. You're an excuse maker. As long as you make excuses, truth will not find a lodging place in your heart. And without truth, you're not a glad-hearted, joyful person. Without truth. When God convicts you about things, it's a time to repent. If, if the preacher said something that is true, and especially it's personally true in your life, don't fight it. Repent. Self-justification only makes it worse until finally the door is closed. Truth is the only thing that God has given us to set us free. Not half-truths, not partial truths, but the truth. We have to speak the truth. We have to yield to the truth. We have to love the truth. We have to love it and want it. And you know, I can't see me like you see me. Isn't that right? And you can't see you like I might see if I'm around you much. I'm just thinking of somebody just yesterday. Now there's somebody I probably ought to talk to and say this to them. Then my mind said, well, now that might be the last conversation y'all ever have. So I'm talking in my mind now. This is a mono thing. And I said, yes, but they need to hear this because if I love the person, I can't just leave them like that because God's going to judge that someday. They need to change. Yeah, but man, you know, they might think, who do you think you are? I know they might think that, but it's still true. I'm not trying to gain their favor. I'm trying to be a brother. Yeah, but you know how it is. Some people are, boy, they take some of these things wrong. Well, just remember this. No one repents while making excuses. No one repents while making excuses. Let me close with this tonight. Turn to the middle of your Bible, the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Verse 6 and 7. This is the closing remarks. Verse 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. That means he's not always near, and he's not always to be found. But when he opens himself up to you, seek him. When you're stirred, seek him. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. What's that say? Thoughts? Does that say thoughts? We ought to teach on thoughts. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Forsake him and let him return unto the Lord. And if he will do those first two things, God will have mercy on him and to our God because he will abundantly pardon. Now what happens when this happens? When the wicked forsakes his way and an unrighteous man his unrighteous thinking, maybe his negative thinking, and he turns around and he turns to the Lord, what big change will God make in him? Let me show you. It's in this verse. Let me read up to it, then I'll point it out. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, because the way you think is the way you are. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper the thing whereto I sit it. Now would that make you happy? to see the word effective in your life. Look at verse 12. This is what it does. This is what happens. For you shall go out with what's that word? Joy. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break 
forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's God's way of telling you what you can expect when you do things God's way and line up with what his word says. God will fulfill his word in your life. He will perform his word for you. And it will be such that you will go out with joy. You won't need money in your pocket. You just know that God is going to supply your needs. He's going to bless you going out. He's going to bless you coming in. Whatever you put your hand to is going to prosper. He'll bless you in the city. He'll bless you in the field. He'll bless your basket in your store. He'll bless your cattle and your children. He'll bless it all. Why wouldn't we be glad if he's promised to do that? I don't care if he's ever done for anybody before. He said he would, therefore he will. And why not? I'll be the first one then. I believe it's been said that what God said, he said it to me. Chapter 35, this is it. Does your Bible say that? Good. It doesn't say da-da-da-da, but it says what we sing. And the redeemed or the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. It is somewhere. It can be found. It is available. They the redeemed shall find it. If you're not joyful tonight, if you're sort of a down a little bit person, it can be found. It's there. It's somewhere. Seek and you shall find. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and what? Sorrow and sighing and criticism and negativity and blahs and depression shall all flee away. You can't have joy and depression. They don't mix. It's joy. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word and truth. And in the name of Jesus, I ask you to cause your word to be like rain and for us to be like dry soil that needs it and that as it falls upon us, we would rejoice and receive it and that we would bear fruit also. We are a needy people here, Lord. After all these years we've been here, Longer than we ever thought. Longer than most anybody ever lasted. And yet we need things as much now as we ever have. I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit would sovereignly move amongst us in the days to come. That you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.